You are now listening to the January 26th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the attributes of God, walking our talk, and grace upon grace. First, let's begin with the attributes of God. This program will examine how we can learn about who God is, His character, and His nature by discovering His attributes. everyone, and welcome to the Attributes of God program series. I am your host, Susan Holtgrew. Have you ever taken a bit of oil and poured it into a glass of water? Did it mix with the water? No, it didn't. Water and oil will always remain separate. The oil will not corrupt the pure water. Today we are going to study the holiness of God, another communicable attribute that he shares with us. According to Vine's Biblical Dictionary, holy means to be set apart. In the English Standard Version of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, verse 3 states, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God set the seventh day apart from all the other days and declared it holy. Now, in the New American Standard Bible, the word holy is substituted for sanctified, and we have already learned that sanctified means holy. God is holy because he is separated or set apart from sin and evil. Being transcendent, infinite, and eternal, to name a few, he is also holy. Remember, transcendent means beyond our intelligence and imagination. Infinite means subject to no limitation. And eternal means he has no beginning and no end. And now holy means he is set apart. Are you beginning to see an interconnection between God's attributes? In heaven, the seraphim call out to one another in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, and say, Holy, holy. Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, the four living creatures, day and night, never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. In the books of Exodus and Leviticus, where God is giving Moses instructions for construction for the tent of the tabernacle, all the items to be used in the tabernacle, and all the garments of the priests, the word holy is used numerous times. These things were set apart from the ordinary and were only for God. God expects us to be holy, set apart from the world and the evil that is in it. God chose Abraham to begin a nation set apart from all other nations, the nation of Israel. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. 
Now, because of Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross, we Gentiles can be in a relationship with God, and we are grafted into God's family, just as Paul writes in Romans chapter 11, verses 17 through 23. In our sinful state, we cannot approach God or even be near his holiness, as Isaiah realized in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, when he saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with seraphim calling out the holiness of the Lord and the foundations trembling. And he said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. But now Jesus' work on the cross bridged the chasm between us, a sinful people, and God, the Holy One. I would like to close our program today with the words of Peter's first letter in chapter 1, verse 14, where he writes, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Thank you for joining me today, and until next time, God bless you, and goodbye.
Coming up next is the podcast series, Walking Our Talk. We will be studying the book, Learning How to Trust Again, by Dr. Ed Delph and Alan and Polly Heller. Through true life stories and God's Word, you will learn how to regain your emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being, how to rebuild broken relationships, and you will learn five keys to regaining your trust. Now let's hear from Alan and Polly Heller and Dr. Ed Delph and begin our study on how we can learn how to trust God and others. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. I'm Dustin Daniels. Last week, we heard a great conversation on what happens when we experience a crisis and our expectations aren't met during that crisis. We also heard some encouraging stories from both Alan and Polly about their own crisis moments in their life and what God did with that. On today's podcast, we're going to learn, number one, what the basis of trust is, what the foundation of trust really is and where it comes from. And number two, the difference between our own experience and experiencing life through the Word of God. All this material that we're discussing today comes from a book titled Learning How to Trust. Alan and Polly Heller, along with Dr. Ed Delph, are authors of this book. And the podcast is simply an in-depth conversation so that you can apply these principles to your own life. Let's get started with today's podcast of Walking Our Talk. So as we talk about the the basis of trust, the the foundation of trust here, guys, Polly, what what does that look like for us to understand? Is it experience? Is it something else? Can you say more on that? Well, I think we build our experience on what we know of God, what Mm. we've gone through in our experience with God. But our experiences can fluctuate, so we have to interpret our experiences through the lens of the Word of God. And the Word is so important so that we know what God looks like, what God thinks, because it already tells us in God's own words what he thinks and what he wants for us. And Ed quotes um, in chapter 9 of this book, out of Isaiah uh, chapter 28, that how Israel was becoming word-hardened, that they were hearing the word, and uh, according to Isaiah 28, it says, so then the word of the Lord to them will become do and do, do and do, rule on rule, rule on rule, a little here, a little there, so that they will go and fall backward, be injured and snared and captured. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that the word starts to sound like yada, 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 blah, 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 blah. And I see that in some of our rote prayers. We stand up and we recite Uh, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's just words without meaning to us because we are not really hearing it and putting it into our hearts. And I think um, growing up in in a Jewish family, we recited several times in the course of every 
worship service, the the words out of Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, that, that means, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But we would stand, you know, you, it was easy to just go, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, and, you know, and move on. And it's, no, listen to what these words are saying. Hear, listen, Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one, the one true God, the one king of the whole universe. And if we're not hearing that and telling that to ourselves, then we're really missing out on the opportunity to have a firm foundation for our so trust. So we're not saying liturgy is bad because we all have liturgy. Even people that say they don't have liturgy, I mean, you know, charismatics have liturgy. Lutherans have liturgy. I mean, we all have, it's, liturgy is order. It's sort of like the Seder, the Passover meal. There's a, a book that you, you use, and you use it, and it's, it means, Seder means order. And we need order, especially, I think of um, the prayers in, what's the, the Book of Common Prayer. There, those prayers have been said for years, and certainly God gave the ironic uh, benediction. benediction, and not addiction. <laughs> uh, I do that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I just did that today. I'm, I'm I never so have done glad that I'm before. not the only one that does that. <laughs> the ironic benediction. You know, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he be gracious to you and give you shalom, give you peace. There is great comfort in doing certain things as a tradition. Why do we have traditions? Because we don't have to make decisions about who does what. Dad always does this. Mom always does this. The kids always do that. Um, And in those prayers, it gives us an anchor. I think what you mentioned is we can come to a church service, to the Bible, to prayers that we say over and over that have deep meaning, but we can come word-hardened, meaning we're not listening anymore. We're not meditating anymore. We're not thinking about what do these words mean? Why am I here? What, what are you trying to say to me, God? So we can have the same words, and they can have deep meaning. I wonder sometimes, I mean, we watch movies, and there's a movie, and it, it's just a B movie, and it really didn't move me. And I'm going, honey, can we turn this thing off? (laughs) And, of course, you want to watch it all the way to the end because you're hoping something will happen that will be good. I'm going, I have seen enough. (laughs) This thing is not going (laughs) to She lives in perpetual hope. That's (laughs) it. That's it. So that's a wonderful quality, but I really want to just go on to the next (laughs) one. But what is the key? Usually it's the director. And is he good at helping me identify and feel What's going on here? And I think in our church service, in our prayers, in, in what we see in the Word of God, Howard Hendricks, uh, you know, I quote him a lot because he just has some great one-liners, sort of like Ed. Um, but Hendricks used to say, if you're not getting anything out of the Word of God, that's more a commentary on you than the Word of God. The Word is alive <laughs> and sharper than any two-edged sword able to divide between joint and marrow. Um, and so if we're not getting much out of the Word, it really has more to do with where is my heart and where is my mind. 
And the problem, too, is that people, when they're going through major trust violations, all those types of things, they're, uh, yeah. they're, they're carrying around emotional clutter like mm. crazy. You know, it's hard to focus. It's hard to concentrate. It's hard to, uh, you know, get past that that primary thing that they're thinking about. And so um, the, the, it's, it's really important, though, that you – how do you say it? The Word of God has got to become louder than the emotional clutter. Mm, that's good. And, and one's got to trump the other. And, you know, if, if you're hurting out there, this is one thing you can – just take this to the bank. The Bible says, thy word is healing. Hmm. Thy word is healing. In other words, that's the source. If you, if you want to be healed, that's where you go. That's not information. It's revelation. Which will lead to transformation, which is what the Word of God was meant to do. He says, rebuke, correct, teach. You know, Ed, you have this great illustration. I, I really want our listeners to hear what it means to really use the Word of God the way it was meant to be used as like an offensive weapon. In Ephesians 6, it talks about the whole armor of God. The offensive weapon is the Word of God, but you, you have some great tips on how to do that. Well, the you know, that is interesting. All those, uh, Ephesians 6, all those different weapons, there's only one offensive weapon. Uh, everything else is defensive. Mm. Even the That's logos of God, the, your your truth girded with your loins girded with truth, mm -hmm. it acts. That's a picture of logos. The Bible, the the Word of God, is called a sword, and so the idea. And Peter talks about having a firm grasp on God's Word, a firm grasp on God's Word, and so how can you have a firm grasp on God's Word, because really the Word of God is going to be better than most other words that you go and get, frankly. And there'll be lots, you'll get lots of different opinions, and everybody will have an opinion, you should do this and that and whatever. What I want to do is I want to go right to um, not just a resource, but the source, okay? And so here's how you have a firm grasp on God's Word. Number one, you've got to picture your hand like if you're holding the sword, you've got five of your fingers, your four fingers and your thumb grasping that handle really strong. And so, uh, but most people, what they do is they'll hear the Word of God. They'll go to maybe a church service or maybe some type of service, and they'll hear a verse quoted or a nice story, a 30-minute, 30 minutes of some guy talking or some woman talking or whatever, some man or woman talking, where you hear the Word of God. But that would, if you, that's all you ever do is hear the Word of God then guess what? You just have one finger on that sword. <laughs> yeah, and you think, boy, I wish Alan was here to hear that. He hey, really he needs got that. He's <laughs> got the pointer finger. Ah! So, so you, you, finger. That's right. You know enough to point oh. at somebody else and right. say, it should be there. Four you know. other things coming, but three other fingers pointing back at you. But so they just hear the Word of God, and they think they're going to grow, and that's just not true. I am sorry. Uh, it all starts with that type of thing. But the next step, then picture your neck, your middle finger, so your first finger, that index finger right here, the pointer finger is hearing it. And then the next finger here, as we go down the long finger there, that's, how do you say it? That's the word where you not only hear it, but you begin to read the Word of God yourself. First Timothy 4.13, read the Word of God. Luke 
8.15, hear the word of God. Now you got two fingers, you have a better grasp on it, but you don't have a firm grasp on it yet. So as you hear the word of God and begin to read the word of God, check out what that person's saying up there. Get your own word. Let God speak not just through somebody else to you, but let God speak to you. And then the third step is studying the Word of God. That's that ring finger there, or whatever you want to call it. Now, and then you start studying it, and you take a look at it, and you're starting to get it, start to move from the outside now into the inside. And that's where it's got to get to, is the inside, so it can transform you. So you hear the Word of God, you read the Word of God, you study the Word of God. That's 2 Timothy 2.15. And then, number four, it's at that little finger. That's when you me- meditate on the Word of God meditate on the Word of God. That's what I'm doing right now. I I have a lot of Bible knowledge. I've been a pastor for, well, since 1979. There were still dinosaurs a lot. <laughs> but um, so I have, I know a lot of the verses and so forth. But uh, now I just, in the morning, I just like to get my cup of coffee, my Starbucks Columbia coffee. <laughs> all right? And I sit there and I just think about what does the word, what does the word say? What, what's going on here, God? Why would you say this? Not just what and not just how, but why? What's, what's the story behind the story? Why are you saying, saying this? So I'm meditating on the word of God. And the final one, now I'm going to put my thumb around that thing and really get a firm grasp on it. And then I'm going to memorize the word of God because I want to be ready for when that assault comes, when that feeling comes, when that slow self-esteem comes, when that shame comes, when that rejection comes, I can be rejected but not affected. Mm -hmm. And that's where you have that firm grasp. You just use that sword. It's the offensive weapon. When a weapon, see, no weapon formed against you will, or at least will Israel will prosper. Mm -hmm. Israel's still here today, so that was Mm -hmm. a pretty good verse to Israel. It wasn't for each one of us individually. It was a, a promise given to Israel. Right. But as we hold on and firm, hold that firm God, the Word of God, f- tightly, and and then when those darts come in, you know, then then we aren't giving this, the enemy a foothold in our life. I mean, that's that type of thing. So we're, it, it's almost like we're ready. That is such a, a beautiful. I mean, I am totally going to use that, Ed, because it's it's one of those things too, where when you counsel, Mister Counselor, mm-hmm. right. Uh, it's one of those things to where if we're missing one of these, then we don't have the firm grasp of having that sword. So Alan, let me ask you this. Do we run to counselors too quickly instead of grasping the sword of the word of God, hearing it, reading it, study? Uh, is it is it too hard to do that process that Ed went through or is it just easier to, to call a counselor and for you to try to fix my life. Yeah, I mean, I think we live in such an instant society that if I can just press a button, call this counselor, and hey, they're going to change me. Um, Which is not true. No. Right? No. But that's what we want. We don't want a process. We want action yeah. and just get a fix Uh, like the addicted heroin addict or cocaine addict that has no control anymore. The drug, there are people that send people to me and I'm going, I can't talk to this person. The drug has them. The alcohol has them. I can counsel them from now until Jesus comes. It's not going to do any good. They can't even get it in their frontal lobe. (laughs) And so, you know, they're going to need another process so that the alcohol and the drugs aren't speaking to me. Mm-hmm. It's 
their heart and the cry of the heart, which is, oh, my God, I need you. And, you know, I don't know where that bottom is. I have people that come to me and I'll say, I mean, I just said this to, I just texted this to somebody today. I said, please tell me what do you want? Jesus many times said, what do you want? To the, at the pool of Bethsaida, the guy for whatever, 32 years is sitting there. Everybody gets in front of me. The waters get troubled. They're supposed to be healing, but I can't do it because I'm just sitting here with my Eeyore theology. <laughs> oh, it's me. And then Jesus comes by and says, get in. Get up. Get in. And he's healed. Everybody's looking at him. 32 years, this guy's done nothing. Then he all of a sudden gets healed. What is that? Um, I think we always want a quick fix. It's because he did the word of God. That's what well, he did the right. God, God right. spoke and he did it. Amen. Well, and I think it comes back to that that same concept of being word hardened. The whole idea of hardened, the the word says, "Do not harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness." And when we harden our hearts against the word, we've also hardened our hearts against God himself and against the working of his spirit in our lives. So we're not allowing the word to do what it's meant to do in our lives and bring about the changes that we need in our lives. So when somebody comes to me and I ask them, are you in the word of God? No. Do you have somebody that's helping you get in the word of God? No. Are you a part of a believers? I don't care if it's a house church, a church of 20 or a church of 20,000. Are you under the teaching of the Word of God? No. And I'm going, why do you think I can help you? If you don't go vertical first and cry out to God, very, very, it, it'll be very um, unusual if somebody can really help you at that point. The thing is, I have pastors who know the Word inside and out that are hooked on pornography because they have given themselves over to somebody. Their flesh has had its fling, and now they can't control it. That dragon egg has grown to the point where they can't. But you know what? I had a guy for, he said, for 25 years, he was doing his sermon, and right after his sermon, he'd prepare his sermon, and then he'd go headlong into pornography. And how can that be? How can the Word of God be preached by somebody who is that decadent? And again, uh, somebody said, the Word of God is what gives healing, not necessarily the person that's giving it. Now, if I were God, I would not do it that way. I would say, you need to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Of course, I would be disqualified then too. So, I mean, God fortunately is so gracious. I find that there are times where somebody has to get off his mat or get off his butt and actually do something and then God works. But there are other times where God just works. And, and when I know it's God, it's when it's both and, not either or. We tend to want a formula that goes, God, you have to do it this way. Well, he put mud on a guy's eyes and he saw. And somewhere else he, he said, so give up everything you have. He didn't say that to everyone. He said it to the rich young ruler because he knew the idol was money. And he said, give it up. So you can 
bet this. If you have a big fear, if it might be a fear of going to somebody and reconciling. It might be a fear of really getting into the Word of God the way I'm supposed to. And a lot of people don't get into the Word because they fear finding out what's going on in their life. And so they keep busy so they can keep God away from them. Because if I ever got quiet, I'd realize what a sinner I am. But the truth is, if I confess it to God, He's faithful and just, will forgive me and cleanse me, not just from some, but all unrighteousness. So go be with God. Don't get the quick fix. Thank you for listening to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. You can visit Dr. Ed Delph at nationstrategy.com. And for Alan and Polly Heller, head over to walkandtalk.org. On the website, you'll be able to order the Learning How to Trust book, along with the newly revised application guide. You can also schedule a personal coaching session, a one-on-one counseling session, and register for one of Alan's upcoming webinars. On behalf of Alan, Polly, and Ed, thanks for listening to Walking Our Talk. We'll meet again next week.
Soul Ministries is now starting a new Japanese program and is able to spread the gospel in Japanese. If you know anyone that is fluent in Japanese, please let them know of this program. We hope that they will be able to hear the gospel of Jesus through our CDs. If you are interested, please contact us at our office. Our office number is 602-866-8999. And our email address is heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Thank you. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Malter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is Outwit, Outlast, Outplay. Part 2. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. Do you know where my heart lies? I love the Cardinals. I'll stop right there before I dig myself a hole. Anyway, pray for me that I stay focused. Well, hey, if you're new with us, we're glad that you're here. We just started a sermon series called Outwit, Outlast, Outplay. We're talking about spiritual warfare. And man, do we ever have to talk about this subject? I like it to keep a regular diet of spiritual warfare before us as a congregation because it's just that important. We all experience it all the time. Many of you that are here today, you probably have been through the ringer this week. You have felt the spiritual warfare and the battle that we are in as believers. So I hope this series encourages you and blesses you and inspires you. Well, we live in a country where we believe that the crime should fit the punishment, do we not? The crime should fit the punishment. Uh, if someone commits a crime, then whatever punishment that person is to receive should be proportional to the crime itself. 
Misdemeanors deserve one sentence. Felonies deserve another. Now, I'm kind of curious. You do not have to answer this question. Uh, and we're not going to get specific, but how many of you in here, and your stock is only going to go up if you answer yes to this question in my mind, how many of you have a criminal record in here? All right. You're bold. You're awesome. I respect who, listen, I, when I was a pastoral intern in California, was on my, kind of my first church staff, the kind of staff, or I was on staff enough to where I could go to the staff meetings and I was in a staff meeting and we, I don't know how we got on the subject, but the pastors were all kind of sharing about their past. And like four out of the five pastors had criminal records. I was stunned. (laughs) Do you want to know if I have one? You'll have to look it up on the internet. I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) It's not. I don't that I know of. No, I don't. I really don't. But here's the deal. We live in a country where the punishment should fit the crime. Perhaps nothing is more frustrating. And I know you guys are frustrated. It is so frustrating when somebody commits a really bad crime and they basically get away with it or they get a really light set. Have you seen this on the news, right? Where somebody, you know, they, they do a pyramid scheme and steal, you know, everybody's money or they commit murder or something worse. And it's like, well, they got six months and a suspended sentence. And it's just your heart breaks. It's like, what in the world is going on? What kind of world are we living in when somebody can commit a crime that bad and basically get a slap on the wrist? But there's an equal and opposite danger, and that is when a person commits a crime and the penalty's too severe, right? How many of you have watched the nightly news and thank heavens it doesn't happen in this country, but how many of you watch the nightly news and you see somebody who's got arrested for stealing something only to have their hands cut off for that offense? Have you ever seen this on the news? No one has seen this. Am I the only ones? Yes. It is crazy. You can be thankful. You and I, we have so much to be thankful for. It is so easy to take for granted the country that we live in. Be thankful that your hands aren't cut off for being caught for stealing something. Amen? By the way, in all honesty, how many of you have ever stolen something in your life, whether it's as a child, a piece of candy, a piece of gum, or something else? How many of you have ever stolen something? Right. The rest of you are liars. Okay? (laughs) We've all stolen. As a kid, the first thing I ever got caught stealing, and maybe it's because I didn't steal a lot of stuff later on in life, it was because of this. I was in nursery school. Remember the old light bright machines? Remember the light brights where you put the pegs in there and they'd light up and you could make things? Those light bright, the little pegs fascinated me. And so I just, I went to nursery school one day and I just stole a whole bunch and jammed them in my pocket and I went home. And my mom must, you know how moms always check the pockets? I think she found, she did find them. I don't know how she found them, but she found them. And I had to take the light bright. I was, you know, it was, a, it was a horrible crime. It was terrible. It scarred me for life. But I had to take the light brights back and all of that. Here's the deal. When somebody gets their hands cut off for stealing something, that penalty, I think we'd all, I think we'd all be right in saying that. When someone commits an offense, the just and right thing to do is to ensure that whatever punishment that they are to endure fits the crime. I know many of us as parents in here or grandparents, you have disciplined your children at different times and you might have thought, oh, I was a little too harsh there. How many have ever disciplined a child and you thought, oh, I probably was just a little bit too much that direction, you know? And we've all done that. We've all done that. And so perhaps you've been on the receiving end of it from a parent or a grandparent when you were growing up and you're like, gosh, all I did was I stole light brights, <laughs> pegs, and now this. Now, the reason I tell you this is because sometimes we as Christians can fall into a trap. I'm going to tell you right now. There is a trap that Satan wants to set for each of you in this room, including me. He is at work with spiritual warfare on many fronts. But what we're going to be talking about today is going to apply to all of us. 
because uh, the traps that he, that we're going to be talking about today, we're confronted with them more often than not. We're confronted with them on a very regular basis. Um, We can fall into the trap and the trap is this, either underreacting or overreacting to the people in our lives who make mistakes. We're going to see that this is one of the schemes that Satan loves to work in the lives of believers. As a matter of fact, our theme verse, which I skipped over, it's back here. This is our theme verse. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. This is Paul talking. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. But here's our theme verse. It's verse 11. So that we would not be, just say that one word with me. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his desires. Again, that word means He wants to take advantage of us. He wants to get the upper hand. He wants to outwit us and use us for his purposes. This is what Satan wants to do. It's a battle of wits, so to speak. Uh, And Satan is coming after you and he's coming after me. But here's the thing. This verse is in a bigger context. And so what I want to do now is I want to read the verses right before this and show you the full context of this passage. So church, it is on that note that I present to you the word of God today. Hear the word of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning back in verse 5. Paul again talking about an individual who has sinned and who has messed up in the church. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. So somebody has messed up in the church and everybody's been affected by it. That's what Paul's saying here. Somebody messed up and it's kind of affecting everybody. Now he says this, For such a one, the punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I may test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. And here's our verse. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs or his schemes. So there is our passage this morning in its fuller context. So the church finds itself smack dab in the middle of a church discipline issue. Now church discipline is important. It's biblical. It is a means by which God holds his children accountable. But as I said last week, Satan is always scheming. He is always scheming. He will show no mercy ever. And when a church finds itself with a member who is embroiled in some sort of sin, do you think Satan's going to back off at that point? No way. That is when he is going to double down. He's always scheming and he's trying to throw a wrench into whatever good might be happening. And this passage is a perfect example of that. Again, there's somebody in the church that is messed up and Satan would love nothing more than the church to do one of two things. That is underreact or overreact. Now let's move this out of a church discipline issue and just make it personal real quick. When somebody in your life messes up, guess what Satan is going to try to get you to do? He's going to try to get you to do one of these two things too. And when he does that, that is when spiritual warfare is happening. Now we don't know who this man is that messed up in such a way as to deserve this church discipline. The passage doesn't say And Paul doesn't mention his name. I think it's very sweet. I really do mean this. It's very pastoral of Paul. Not to mention this man's name. He's talking about him. He refers to him in in the pronoun him or he. So we know it was a man. We know he sinned. 
But we don't know his name and we don't necessarily know what the sin is. And again, Paul's being, I think, compassionate at that point. Most everybody probably already knew who he was and what he had done. But Paul recognizes there's a danger. You know what the danger is? The danger is not the man who has sinned. You would think that that's what Paul had in mind. It wasn't. The danger was the church's attitude toward the man who had sinned. That was where the danger was. And in this particular case, listen very carefully, in this particular case, the church was in danger of being overly harsh. Was in danger of being overly harsh. And so Paul steps in and says, enough is enough. As a matter of fact, he basically says those very words. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. But then he says this, for such a one, the punishment by the majority is enough. You have administered church discipline. Now it's time to throttle back. Up to this point, church discipline that the Corinthians had administered to this man apparently had been appropriate. It had been necessary and appropriate. But if they were not careful, Satan might lure them to cross a line that would cause them to be excessive and extreme. And I can stop the sermon right now and move this out of a church discipline issue to a personal issue. Is there somebody in your life, whether it be in your past or in your present, who has messed up and you are in danger of being overly harsh with them, of being excessive in the discipline that you're showing them or in the attitude that you're showing them? Because this is the danger. We often think of spiritual warfare of, well, Satan's going to come against me in some grand way. Here's how he's going to come against you. He's going to come against you when somebody in your life blows it and Satan is going to whisper in your ear, unload both barrels on them. Let them have it. They deserve it. Mow them down and make them pay. Now here's the irony. And you want irony? I'm about to give it to you. In the book of 1 Corinthians, this is 2 Corinthians. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the Christians in the same church were in a situation where they had done just the opposite. In 1 Corinthians, the Christians were being way too lenient with someone in the body who was messing around with sin. Let me show it to you. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So Paul says this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man, so we know this was a man, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from you. So this is a fascinating passage. The man in this passage right here, the man mentioned in this passage, and the man mentioned in our 2 Corinthians passage, might be one and the same man, but we don't know for sure. There's good evidence that this might be the same man that Paul is talking about in our passage today. But here's the point, and it must not be missed. When a fellow believer messes up and makes a moral mistake or something along those lines, as Christians, we want to be on our guard in those moments because of this, you can be sure, Satan is scheming in those moments. And he's going to scheme to get you to do one of two things, either underreact or overreact to turn the other way and look away from the sin or to mow the person down because of their sin, had already proven in 1 Corinthians that they were capable of underreacting to a fellow believer who had messed up. But now, in our passage today, they were in danger of overreacting. And Paul steps in and says, enough is enough. But of this you can be sure, Satan was scheming in both situations. 
And what is true, what was true for the believers in the first century can be very true for you and I today. And that is we fall into Satan's trap of either underreacting or overreacting when offense has occurred. So I want to talk briefly about both of these. Let's talk about underreacting just for a moment. So the first way that Satan will set a trap for you and for me where spiritual warfare will occur is when somebody in the body of Christ or somebody that we have in our life who calls themselves a believer is messing around with sin. And Satan's going to want us to underreact in this moment. He's going to tempt us to underreact. And like I already pointed out, this was exactly what was happening in the church of Corinth. There was a man in the church who was sleeping with his, his father's wife. Okay. Now it wasn't his mother. It was his, it says his father's wife, meaning what it probably means is that his father had remarried and then he got eyes for her as well. It's so bad that Paul says even pagans don't behave in this manner. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. Even pagans don't do this, Paul says. This is how bad it is. But the church in Corinth had fallen into a trap of underreacting to this man's sin. And as a result, it becomes necessary for Paul to step in. In other words, this man sinning in the church apparently is saying, none of my business. You know, am I my brother's keeper? Who am I to stick my nose in his affairs? You know, what he's doing, he's doing at home. It doesn't bother me. Let me tell you, when a fellow believer is messing around with sin, Satan is going to be whispering in your ear, it's no big deal. It's none of your business. Stay out of it. That is spiritual warfare right there. I bet you that probably every single one of us in this room right now have somebody in our life who calls themselves a believer but is messing around with sin. So this applies to us. This very much applies to us. Because now I'm not talking about the people of the world. The people of the world are going to do what they do. I'm talking about people within the body of Christ who are brothers and sisters. I'm telling you. Let me ask you a question. Cain killed Abel and God came to Cain and said, where is your brother? And what did Cain say? He said, am I my brother's keeper? What's the answer to that question? Yes, you are. If you are a believer, if you are in the body of Christ, we are each other's keepers. In this regard, we have each other's back. We're family. We look out for one another and we care for one another. So if a brother or sister gets entangled in sin, just as if they got entangled in barbed wire, we are here to help. Now, getting out of that barbed wire, it may be painful, but we're here to help. The danger is, in that moment, Satan's going to whisper in your ear and say, stay out of it. It's none of your business. They're involved with sin. Let them be. And so we underreact to the sin that is around us. And by the way, people say that the church is full of hypocrites. And you know what? In many cases, they're right. But you want to know why the church is full of hypocrites? I would argue. Let me give you two reasons. And this is off my notes. Number one is because there's churches on every corner. So if, for example, at this church, if the board of elders decides to administer church discipline and somebody doesn't want church discipline, guess what they're going to do? They're going to go down the street to the next church, right? Or they're just going to go find another church. I'm out of here. I don't want to, you're dead. So they're gone. So that's one of the things that we have to experience. The other is this. The other reason that the church seems so full of hypocrites is because fellow brothers and sisters are messing around with sin and we have fallen right into the spiritual trap of going, it's none of my business. I'll just look the other way. Who am I to stick my nose in my brother's or sister's business? You are their brother or sister. If your physical brother or sister were caught in barbed wire, would you help them? 
You would, you would intervene. It might be painful to get them out of that barbed wire, but you would help them. And this is what you and I are to do as believers. That was a freebie because I'm off my notes now. Now I gotta get back and find out where I was. So Paul intervenes and he says this, let him who has done this be removed from you. So they're underreacting and Paul says, here's the proper reaction, kick them out of the church. This is how severe this is. He says, you've underreacted, here's what you need to do. You need to break fellowship with them for the purposes of breaking their heart so that they come back with a repentant heart. This is what Paul wants. Folks, again, in the exact same way, the temptation for you and I, when we encounter fellow believers messing around with sin or entangled in sin, will be to underreact, to look the other way, think it's no big deal, it's none of my business. Satan would love nothing more for us to do this. I can guarantee you he's scheming to do this even now. Is there somebody in your life who calls himself a a believer and is messing around with sin and you are listening to the whispers that says, stay out of it? It's none of your business. Listen, the proper biblical answer as Christians is we are our brother and sister's keepers. I've got your back. You've got mine. We need to do this for each other. Listen, the world may take pride in looking the other way. That's what the world says. The world says, hey, your life is your life. I'm gonna stay out of it. But we're not the world. We're the church. We're the body of Christ. And this thing right here determines how we operate the body of Christ. And so where the world takes great pride in saying, well, you do whatever you want. It's none of my business. We don't operate that way in the church. We are very, very different in the body of Christ. Listen, sin is a cancer. As a matter of fact, sin is worse than cancer. Cancer destroys the body. Sin destroys both the body and the soul. Think about how aggressively we deal with cancer once it's discovered in our bodies. Listen, how much more should we respond when sin is detected in the body of Christ or in the life of a brother or sister in Christ? Now, confronting somebody who is messing around with sin isn't easy. The easy thing to do is go, I'm just going to underreact to that. It's not that big of a deal. It's not easy. We must do it respectfully and with great care. You know, we don't show up with our gigantic KGV Bible and hit them over the head, you know, you're sinning. We don't do that. We do it with respect and with great care, but it has to be done. Otherwise, we have fallen right into the trap that Satan wants us to do, that he wants us to fall into, and that is, it's none of your business. Stay out of it. And again, I can stop and ask right now, is there somebody in your life who is a believer who's messing around with sin and you're just turning the other way. You're going, no big deal, I'm just gonna ignore it. Now that's the first part of the spiritual warfare that we need to talk about. The second is this, that is overreacting. That is overreacting. And we've fallen into this trap too, many of us, all of us. Here's the deal. When somebody messes up and makes a mistake, they are in a vulnerable spot in that moment. If they've been confronted, that means their sin has been found out. It's been exposed. And that means they are at the mercy of others. Now listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. This might be the most important thing I'm going to say today. Satan would love nothing more than when somebody is at your mercy for you to show them no mercy. And it is in those moments that Satan is going to tempt those of us who are God's children to be overly harsh, even to the point of being vindictive toward the person that has messed up. You see, Satan wants us to fall into this trap because of the damage it does. When we're overly harsh with people, when they've messed up, it causes damage. As a matter of fact, our passage says as much. It says, so that you should rather turn and forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. Many of you in here, including me, 
Perhaps there was a time when you messed up and a grandparent or a parent or somebody was overly harsh with you. They, the punishment didn't fit the crime. Maybe you stole light brights and the punishment didn't fit the crime, right? We've all been in that situation. Maybe, and I bet you, most of you that in, are in here today that are parents or grandparents, I bet you there was a time when you disciplined one of your children and you thought to yourself, I think I went too far. Ever been there? I've done it. You discipline your kid and you talk to your wife after and you go, I might have pushed a little too hard there. Maybe the punishment didn't fit the crime. Have you ever been there with me as parents? You are so righteous, you, you guys. I'm the only one. I confess my sins and nobody's with me. This may be the second most important thing I'm going to say to you today. Satan wants to take a person who is crushed in spirit and crush them even more and he wants you to do his bidding. That's spiritual warfare right there, folks. You want to know what spiritual warfare looks like? It is a person who has been caught in their sin, has been exposed in their sin, and they're crushed in spirit, and they're brokenhearted about it, and they're repentant about it, and Satan wants to crush them even more, and he wants you to do his bidding. And when you are the person who is in a position of showing someone else mercy, it will be very tempting in that moment to yield power in a way that leaves them bloodied, bruised, and gasping for life, right? You messed up. You hurt me. You sinned. And I'm in a position where I didn't sin. I didn't mess up. So here come both barrels. Bam, bam. I'm going to mow you down and you are going to know it. You're going to feel my wrath and you are going to feel it for a long, long time. Instead of administering the appropriate amount of discipline, we fall into Satan's trap. We cross the line and we make people pay in the worst type of way. And I can pause for a moment and ask, is there somebody in your life, in your past, or even in your present who has stumbled and you are in a position of power over them? You are in a position to show them mercy. The question is, are you showing them mercy? The temptation in those moments is to, I'm not going to talk to them, or to be passive aggressive, or to, to find convenient ways to let them know they messed up and to keep reminding them that they messed up. We're never going to let them forget that they messed up, Right? I will tell you right now, it's one thing when somebody sins in the body of Christ and we have to administer church discipline. That's one thing. But I'm gonna tell you right now, and there's spiritual warfare that happens all the time when that happens. But when it's personal, I guarantee you there's gonna be spiritual warfare involved. When somebody sins against you, Satan is going to whisper in your ear. He's gonna whisper one of two things. Remember, he's gonna, he's gonna want you to underreact. But in this case, he's gonna say, let him have it. Mow them down. Bring out the big guns and mow them down. Leave them bloodied and bruised. Listen, Satan wants to take a person who is crushed in spirit and he wants to crush them even more and he wants you to do his bidding in this regard. That is spiritual warfare. So what do we do when a believer stumbles and sins? What is the countermeasure to that attack? When, when, a, when a believer sins, Satan is on the move. What are the countermeasures? The countermeasures are right here. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Perhaps the most ignored verse in all the Bible, right there. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be as a Gentile or a tax collector. In other words, excommunicate them, kick them out. There comes a point where church discipline, where we say, you're out of here. You have an unrepentant heart and you're messed up in sin and you're, you're not going to mess up the body anymore. 
But this is our countermeasure. Listen, just as the United States has countermeasures, if Russia or North Korea to, were to attack us, God has given you and I countermeasures in spiritual warfare. And folks, this is one of them. This is your countermeasures. This is spiritual warfare 101, and this are the countermeasures. When somebody blows it and messes up, you go to this verse. It will protect you from falling into the traps of Satan. I've said it before. I said it last week. I'll say it again. There's not a one person in this room, I bet this week, that will be, fall into an email or phone scam. I bet you not one of us will fall into an email or phone scam. But I bet you half of us will fall into a scam or a scheme of Satan this week. And I bet you of that half, half of those will fall into a scheme that Satan is working on with regard to personal relationships. It'll be a failure to do this and either underreact or overreact. I bet you that will be the trap that many of us fall into, including yours truly. We have to be on guard. Trust me, you wanna know where spiritual warfare happens? It happens in your personal relationship. This is where Satan is going to attack you and he's going to attack me. Now, what do we do with a believer who's been confronted and they're repentant? You go, somebody commits an offense and you do the right thing and you go to them and you go, hey, I, you know, you're doing this and I wanna just talk to you about it. And they go, you're right, thank you for coming to me and I'm repentant and my heart's broken and I'm crushed in spirit. What do we do with a person who's crushed in spirit? Let me ask you again, what does Satan wanna do with a person who's crushed in spirit? He wants to crush him even more and he wants you to do his bidding. What do we do with a person who's crushed in spirit? Paul tells us exactly what we are to do. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Folks, those three words right there are your countermeasures to spiritual warfare. That's it. Those three words will protect you against the schemes of your enemy when offense has occurred, when a person stumbles, when a person messes up in your life. These are gonna be the three words that protect you. Forgive the person just as Christ has forgiven you. Let me ask you a question. Is it possible for a person to sin against you on a level that you have sinned against God? No. Your offense and my offense in the sight of God is a million times worse than anything that you could ever do to me or I could do to you in this lifetime. And yet, if the God of the universe forgives me, why would I hold somebody accountable to such a minor offense that they have committed against me? We're not only to forgive them, we're to comfort them. This is the next step. We comfort them. We come alongside, and you know what we say? We say, I understand. It could have been me. See, we don't cast stones when somebody falls into sin or messes up. You know why? Because it could have been me. And it very well may be in the future that it is me. And if it is me at that point, guess what I need from you? Comfort. I need you to comfort me and say, it's okay. And then I need one more thing. We need one more thing. I need you to reaffirm. We need to reaffirm our love for each other. I love you. I love you. You messed up and it's okay. I've messed up. It's okay. We're human, but I love you. We reaffirm our love for people. So again, let me stop the sermon. We're done basically, but let me just ask you, is there somebody in your past or is there somebody in your current life right now who has messed up and sinned against you and they have a repentant heart? If they have a repentant heart, here's the command today. Forgive, comfort, and reaffirm. Forgive, comfort, and reaffirm. Never forget, folks, Satan is always scheming. Spiritual warfare, the number one place it's probably gonna happen is in your personal relationships. It is gonna be a believer 
who has stumbled into sin and Satan's either going to whisper in your ear, turn the other cheek, don't look, don't matter, it's not your business, or he's going to say, mow them down and let them have it. It is one of these two things, underreacting or overreacting. If we are faithful to do what the Bible says, Satan's schemes will be useless against us. He will be useless against us. I want to tell you where we're going next week real quick. Next week, we're going to talk about how spiritual warfare, how Satan works in times, pardon me, how spiritual warfare happens in times of tragedy. And you're going to hear the testimony of a lady who went through a very big tragedy in her life. And it's a powerful testimony and how um, Satan was at work wanting to discourage her in that time of tragedy. So you don't want to miss this testimony because it's very, very powerful. Amen.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week. Thank you.